What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Inman, and we have an exciting month for you. We're going to be talking all about contracts, those things you're going to sign that basically turn you into an NBA player, because even at a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, you're going to be signing potentially what is worth several million dollars if you were to stay with the same employer, basically the duration of your career. So these are really, really big deals. You shouldn't take this stuff lightly. And we have brought in good friend and expert of mine, John Apino from Contract Diagnostics to talk through all of these intricate little things. And we've got some exciting stuff going throughout the whole month. So tune in if you're interested in learning about contracts this month. All right. And before we go too far into the show, I want to say a special thank you for Dr. Erin Wiseman. She is today's sponsor and it is for her podcast, Dr. Me First. But instead of me talking about it, let's hear from Dr. Wiseman. This is Dr. Erin Wiseman. I'm a fellow Dr. Podcast Network member, life coach, and mama three. I kick butt, I take names, and I help other high-achieving people do the exact same. And today, I want to invite you over to my podcast, Dr. Me First. It's well over 300 episodes, and each one is filled with inspiration and advice from amazing guests. So grab your wife, your mom, your sister, your best friend, and come tune in as we explore what it means to be a woman in medicine and a woman in this world. Because this podcast is a dose of everything that I needed when I was burned out, exhausted, and ready to quit it all. At the end of the day, I do this to help you feel more connected to yourself and to connect with others. I love to end my show with a kick of encouragement, so here's my favorite tagline. Your life, your calling, your pulse matters. See you over at Dr. Me First. All right, and just like always, disclaimer in the beginning, this is not financial planning, investments, contract, or any other type of advice you could think of. Think of this as helpful tips and tricks for quote-unquote educational purposes only, and of course, the cheesy dad jokes mixed in there. All right, let's bring on John and learn all about contracts. John, what's up, man? Welcome back to the podcast. Hey, good to see you. Thanks for having us. I'm excited that you're here. So we're going to learn all about some contracts, but I am really curious and I want to maybe start here with you is with COVID, everything's changed. We're about what, 18 months since COVID started. What has really changed with contracts? Cause you're doing thousands of these Yes. in terms of reviewing thousands of these. What are you seeing now that COVID is here and hopefully gone soon? Yeah, it was interesting. As you can imagine, last year, March, April, May, we saw major systems put hiring freezes in place, just put everything on pause because nobody knew what was going to come. And we saw many employers unilaterally slash physician pay. Sometimes they would just issue letters that said, please, everyone sign this. And by sign this, it's a 20% reduction in pay until further notice or maybe for 90 days. And many systems, the administration, the CEOs and the C-level folks took 25% or 30% pay cut. And a lot of those letters said to avoid termination. So most contracts have no cause terminations, which we might be able to get into later. But a lot of these letters just said to avoid termination, please sign this. And they issued them to everybody. And we took a lot of phone calls and a lot of people were scared. And although all specialties were impacted differently, as you could imagine, from a hospitalist to an infectious disease physician, to a pulmonary and critical care physician or an emergency physician. We saw lots of people in dermatology. We saw lots of folks in plastic surgery go through major changes as far as their employment status, almost being offered partnership to the office being closed down and then being out of a job. So 
We saw a lot of things just randomly happen last year in March, April, May, and some of the reductions in pay were in effect all through last year. They said this is until January because they didn't know what was going to happen. And we saw some very good information from MGMA as far as the uptick in productivity last year, as far as after the pandemic. So we saw a lot of physicians make up for it and they're analyzing some of the data still, but we just saw some data yesterday from MGMA that average primary care pay was up 2.48% last year over 2019. And I think average specialist pay was down somewhere in the range of four, four and a half percent. Although it impacted every specialty and every geographic market differently, we did see some significant impacts. Now, as far as how we've seen that change employment contracts, we've seen a lot more clauses added that say, you know, if there's an act of God or a tornado or a storm or a fire or a pandemic, we're seeing a lot of the contract language may be thrown out the door. We did take a lot of physician calls from our past clients on employers who just made unilateral changes. And we got the same question. It was, you know, can they do this? Is it possible for them to do this? We have a contract. Can they do this? And the answer might be no, right? There might be a 90-day no-cause termination. And if they wanted to change something, they might need to give the 90-day notice. They might need to terminate 90 days. They might not be able to say, pack your stuff, you're done in 30 days. But we did have a lot of employers basically issue unilateral rulings with the gavel. Boom, here's what we're going to do. And if you don't like it, go ahead and call your lawyer. So they called us looking for advice. And unfortunately, in a lot of those situations, there's not a lot of advice we can give. Outside of, if you don't like it, you can maybe quit. And sometimes that's not always what they want to hear. But we saw a lot of immediate changes and a lot of scared employers but then we've also seen a lot of great changes as far as how the job market's changed a little bit, some specialties, how they're being valued as far as contracts moving forward. But I feel that from what we are seeing now outside of maybe some offices or some practices not offering upfront cash like signing bonuses, I feel like we've gotten through a lot of what was the issues and the pain last year of COVID. And I really feel a lot of employers are looking to the future. I think there's a lot of reasons behind that from the recovery to people being more mobile, to getting back in, to some places being able to immediately shift to telehealth. We have seen some places continue to do telehealth just because the physicians liked it and they realized that maybe that's a way that we could go. And CMS has implemented some changes on telehealth reimbursement that I think they're going to make permanent, which will likely make that be more of a sticking point for some offices that maybe didn't want to do it in the past because of decreased reimbursement rates. Yeah, you mentioned the job market, and I'm curious to see what you're seeing. And I know it's obviously specialty specific or field specific, but what are you seeing with the job market now that we're through the pandemic? I feel weird saying that, but let's uh, glass half full. We're through the pandemic. What are you seeing in the job market? Is it contracting and expanding? Like, how does that play into potentially offers that people are getting in their contracts? We're all aware of the pending physician shortage, right? I was looking at an old slide deck that we used to give back, and I think it was, uh, what was it, 2012 or 2013 on the anticipated supply and demand curves and how all these baby boomers retiring and they're not very healthy, they need all this care, but yet they want to live active lives, so they need lots of knee surgeries and procedures. And you look at the number of physicians and you combine the increasing patient base with physicians who maybe want to work less than 80 hours a week, the physician of yesterday, a lot more females come into the place and they want to work less or they want to do more job shares or they do take time off for children, which impacts if you're taking three, four months off for your first three years, that impacts, you know, how much care is available. And you're also seeing physicians retire early. We've all heard of a lot of those movements where physicians want to retire early. And so instead of a physician working till 76 or 78, like they used to, 
a lot of them want to retire at 55 or less. And so you add all those things together. And there's a lot of talk about this big physician shortage and it hasn't gone away. And that was before there was even any talk of the Affordable Care Act and more patients in the system. Now, what we've seen as far as the last year, the pandemic, we saw a lot of physicians just wrap it up. I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to worry about telehealth. I'm just going to close everything down. I've been successful. I've got my money. I'm closing shop. And we saw offices just outright close. We saw some physicians not want to accept any decrease in pay or do any telehealth because they're more old school and they maybe were thinking of retiring a couple of years ago and they had their investments in safe places. They transitioned out. I think now you've got the markets out again, back to all-time highs. And that you're seeing a lot of physicians who maybe didn't think they were going to retire early start to close it down. We've seen a lot of physicians step out of the job market. And as even with robust GME expansion, they're not graduating 30% more physicians each year. And so we've seen a lot of employers really struggle to find good physicians. Because of that, we're seeing physicians, we're seeing employers reach out. And because of, I think, many things, the pandemic being one of them, we're seeing physicians want to sign earlier. We've done over 70 2022 contracts already. We have done, I think, 19 2023 contracts. So people are signing out very early. We've even done one contract for 2024. So one of the trends we're seeing is people are just signing early, which of course, it might be a good thing, but allows the practice to know that they've got a physician coming, they can prepare, it allows a physician to put that aside and not worry about where they're going to go. But it also provides challenges. We like to structure those deals a little bit differently than we would someone who's starting in five months this coming July. So as far as some of the trends, we're seeing some of the employers hire earlier. Because of that, we're seeing more stipend plans. Instead of maybe signing bonuses, we're seeing $2,000, $1,500, $3,000 per month as a stipend plan that's going to the physician while they're training, which can be beneficial. We, As far as other employment trends, we're seeing more student loan reimbursement. It's no secret that everybody has lots of student loans now. Physicians, of course, have a big student loan debt most often. So we're seeing a lot of employers shift back. They used to have a lot of them, you know, eight, nine years ago, they've shifted away from them and given the physicians more compensation. Now they're shifting back to offering student loans as a way to recruit top talent. We are seeing more student loan reimbursement as well. In the student loan reimbursement space, I'm curious because if you're going for public service loan forgiveness, you actually don't really want that reimbursement. That just goes right back in. It lowers that amount. Are you guys seeing or able to negotiate around that going, hey, instead of that, can I have more comp? that I'll pay this student debt on myself. Are you guys seeing that? Or is that something where they're trying to really push that? No, we are. And every situation is a little different. Every employer is a little different, of course. A lot of employers just want to put everything under a certain banner, right? So we've allocated a million five for this FTE for the next two years, and they want to keep everything under that banner. So you add everything in there, signing bonuses, stipends, student loans, relocation amount, salary. And the employer, a lot of times, they won't care how that million five is taken up. It's just up to a million five. So there might be some suggestions that we would make as far as how you would cut up a salary and a bonus structure and a student loan repayment. It's great that they work with an accountant, depending on how they're going to do a stipend plan to make sure that they're maximizing their taxes, of course. And if there's any way that they can work with an investment professional to make sure that they're maximizing pre-tax and post-tax contributions at that age as well. But yeah, we are seeing, there's so much stuff going on in the periphery, it seems like, but we are seeing a lot more student loans. And depending on the situation, yeah, it might be very beneficial. We see sometimes the employer just paying the student loans directly. Sometimes we'll see at the end of the year, the physician will get a payment of 25000 for student loan, but it just goes directly through payroll, which means they'll take out 401k and they'll take out taxes and everything as well. And then that goes to the remodeling of the bathroom versus the student debt. 
Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Hopefully people are not doing that. They're doing all the right things. You've danced around pay a bit. And I know that you're reviewing thousands of contracts every year and it's very different between fields and specialties, but maybe you could talk high level on this, but how are you seeing pay basically coming through and has it changed due to the tightening of the job market or Obviously, it's going to change if it's private practice versus working for a hospital or academics. But how are you seeing basically pay come through in terms of how they're offering compensation to physicians? Yeah, it's all over the board. And every specialty is a little bit different. Of course. We saw dermatology take a big hit last year. We saw plastic surgery take a big hit last year. And we've seen nice recoveries in the dermatology market. I think the plastic surgery market is still muddling through it, if you will. And I'm just talking just on base salary and guaranteed compensation. Other physicians, you know, we're seeing a lot of traditional salaries and a production bonus. We have seen a shift over the years into more of a quality bonus. And I've actually talked with administrators on how they're going to slowly maybe try to transition physicians from a productive pay, whether it's an RVU or a collection-based structure, into more of a quality bonus or a value-based incentive. Can you go into that just a little bit? Talk about what a quality bonus is and how someone maybe could structure or negotiate around that? So again, it varies so much, but a lot of quality metrics, they might be individualized on the physician. So if they're an endocrinologist, it might be structured around what's the hemoglobin A1C, what's the average lipid level. There might be some compliance metrics in there as far as their patients. If it's a hospitalist, it might be discharge. It might be a number of times seen. But if it's a different specialty, it could be complication rates or infection rates. Again, it might be an individual metric or it might even be a group metric. And some of the challenges with some of these bonuses, if you're a hospitalist that works at night and yet you're tied to a group bonus, which the majority of patients are seeing during the day, it can be challenging to analyze and say, will you hit this or will you not? You're relying on a lot more other people. You're two night docs versus 26 day docs that might skew the numbers. And sometimes we'll see it's a bonus. It's 5%. It's $30,000. It's fill in the blank as far as a bonus goes. Other times we'll see it as a withhold. For example, your salary is $250,000 and $30,000 will be withheld based on meeting certain quality metrics. And sometimes that small micro language might not even be noticeable to the physician who hasn't seen a whole bunch of contracts to understand that it's not a $30,000 bonus. It's a withhold on your base salary if you don't meet certain metrics. And then, of course, we want to know when is that withhold repaid or if there's a bonus on top of your salary, when is the bonus paid? And then what about partial years? And there's all kinds of other things that we would look for that. But we've seen the value-based pay or the quality bonus, but we've also seen just citizenship bonuses. And those can be anything from showing up to meetings and being a participant in the meetings, or it could be something as, I've seen something as simple as checking your email once a month or closing your charts inside of seven days or something. So a lot of times these groups are just finding, these hospitals and groups are finding ways to inspire the physicians to do various other things, yet have a great compensation without just a high base salary. Or they're finally starting to pay them for all the extra work that they've been doing and yeah. haven't been compensated for. Because that's usually where that comes into play for that as you're calling it citizenship and doing that. What are you seeing in terms of the private market versus being employed at a hospital or working in academics? Those are three, I think, very different things. What are you seeing in those trends? And if you just look back at last year, at some of the changes that happened, obviously smaller private practices were impacted significantly more than the large employers. The large employers had a lot of accountants, a lot of financial professionals to go after certain government incentives or support. A lot of them have a lot more days on cash. 
There were some major institutions that were within 30 days of closing the doors, though. I don't doubt that. Oh, yeah. This is one of those things that I'm always talking about 457s. And when someone's like, well, I work for a massive institution and there's no way they're going under. And this is something I think I can chat just briefly and really quick is in San Diego scripts, it wasn't actually due to COVID. It's a cyber attack. And we don't know how it's going to play out. And I don't want to go speculating and they don't have a 457. But if they did, I would be very nervous if I was a physician, even though this is a major five hospital system, anything can happen. And I think even if a hospital system came out of COVID strong, if you have a 457, you have to take a real hard look at will your institution be around and is it safe and secure because you are a creditor on that. So it's interesting to see even large hospital systems have significant trouble during the pandemic. Yeah. It's also harder for them to just pivot, right? You saw some of the smaller private practices able to just up and pivot to telehealth right away or switch how they're going to do something. And it's easier for them to ebb and flow than a large organization with 17 levels of management and a board of to get decisions from. Over the years, we've seen a big trend in hospital-employed position, non-academic, but not physician-owned, the hospital-owned practice. We've seen a lot of physicians go to those models, and we've seen those types of employers, you know, gobble up, if you will, a lot of smaller practices, so primary care offices that can refer to their specialists. And so we've seen this employed model grow significantly And I don't know the exact numbers, but over the last five years, we've probably done, if we looked at our new grads and where they're going, we've probably been going 65, 70% into employed positions. We have a smaller percent that's going into academics and maybe 20% or 30% that are going into private practices. Now, I think that's shifting back. I think a lot of larger hospitals have realized, hey, it's difficult to have thousands of physicians that we are obligated to keep busy. We are obligated to pay salaries. We are obligated for benefits. And a lot of the primary care practices don't make any money. They're lost leaders, if you will, for the hospital, assuming that they have good referrals downstream and those primary care doctors are referring into their system and hospitalizing their patients in their system. So a lot of those private practices for family medicine or for internal medicine or even pediatricians can be lost leaders. And even the specialists, as far as where the pay has gone lately, have become lost leaders for the hospitals. And obviously they're looking out for technical fees, but I think we're going to see a little bit of a shift back to the physician-owned model. We've seen a lot of hospitals have their non-compete language changed, where instead of saying you can't work for 30 miles, you guys don't see a lot of this in California, in Chicago saying you can't work for 30 miles, it'll say you can work for a private practice inside of 30 miles, or you can start your own practice inside of 30 miles, you just can't go work for another hospital system. And of course, we'd like you to stay on staff at our hospital, assuming that physician keeps referring into their program. So we have seen a little bit, I think we're going to see an accelerated trend into physicians going back into the physician-owned model and that private practice. And I think whether a physician wants to do that, I think there's a handful of physician groups that are physician-owned and led that are maybe large and multi-specialty groups that are going to have a very good run over the next three to five years. Whether they sell to private equity or not is another story, but I think we'll have an interesting run over the next couple of years as physicians, I feel, are going to go further away from that hospital-employed model and back to a private practice model. Yeah, I felt like every GI doc that we've worked with was approaching us in the last probably 18 months of, well, we're looking to getting acquired by private equity. Yeah, When it rains, it pours. It was pretty much every client I felt had that going unless they worked for an academic institution or something like that. Yeah, we've seen the private equity groups go through radiology and anesthesiology and dermatology. And then we saw them hit ophthalmology. They've started to hit urology and now GI, depending on orthopedics is in play in some markets, depending on a whole bunch of factors. But yeah, we've definitely seen that. And 
it's something that is definitely on many people's radars, and I think it should be. Hey, they're not going after peds? What's the deal? We don't see a whole lot of them going after pediatric practices. I know. Not yet, but we'll see when they run out of other ones to buy. Honestly, they're going to just run out and they're just going to keep moving down and eventually they'll get to every physician field and specialty. But yeah, when you talk about the part of the contract where they're saying this is your non-compete, why is that changing now? Why are they voluntarily coming and attacking that language, whether good or bad? Do you have any insight on that? Why are the employers? Yeah. Why are the employers coming through and changing the non-competes? I don't know for sure. I think a couple of reasons. One, I think they're looking at some of their physicians thinking if you wanted to not be employed by us and go run your own show, we would save money, especially if they're going to stay in the market and they're going to keep referring to the specialist owned by the hospital. They probably don't care. And so I think that's one thing. And there are some state level changes. Everybody should look into if there's any state changes that they have going on. And I'll be honest, a lot of the state changes are driven sometimes by the physician lobbies, but the tech industry is really taking a hold too. As the tech industry gets further out of California and starts to set up different shop in different markets and different states, you're seeing the tech industry sometimes fight for or fight against non-competes because somebody might be working for Facebook and they want to go work for Lyft or they want to go shift over to Uber Eats or something else. So you're seeing a little bit of play in the background, I think, on a political basis. But from an employed, from a hospital employed perspective, I think a lot of them are just thinking, we'd rather not lose money on you, but yet keep you in our market knowing that you can help serve our patients at the same time, maybe if you stay on staff, you'll continue to refer your patients in-house. Yeah, I think those are all really good points. So, John, you've been on the show several times. You're going to be on for the whole month. We're going to be talking all about contracts. They're going to be able to know where to find you. But why don't you tell everyone just really quickly, maybe at this point, I think it's probably beneficial to repeat it again in case they've missed prior shows over the last, gosh, we've been on air like almost four years now. But where can they find you? Tell them a little bit about contract diagnostics. Inform them a little bit more about who you are. Yeah. So I'm John. I'm the founder of Contract Diagnostics. We've been doing this for a decade, believe it or not. Getting old, my friend. Like you said, four years, you know, time flies. I mean, a decade. Time flies, man. We've seen lots of cool stuff and we've learned a lot over the years. And we set this company up to help physicians. And we realized if we helped enough physicians educated and worked with and guided enough physicians through the process that we would be a successful company. And 10 years later, we celebrated lots of milestones, but we still haven't gotten away from that basic core, which is we love to teach. We love to educate on our website. We've got all kinds of free resources. We've got a great blog that I'm very proud of as far as the content that's been coming out, which most of it, nothing to do with contract diagnostics or contracts per se. We've got a lot of stuff on the CMS changes for this July. We've got a Thursday night series that we give. It's free. It's on our website. It's all just information on contracts, but we run a company that helps physicians navigate this process. So they get a contract. We talk even before they get their letter of intent, or if they get a letter of intent, we can talk through that. We can talk through their contract. What does it say? What's unclear? What is the market bear if you're doing PGI in San Diego or if you're doing it in Chicago? Very different. If you're a hospitalist in a town of 50,000 or less people, or you're the first neurosurgeon to rule Iowa, um, all those situations are very different. And even though the contracts may or may not be similar, they may or may not be negotiable. We help the physician navigate the process as far as what questions to ask to do good due diligence to make sure it's not only a great deal for them and their career and their family, but also that they understand what they're signing and if it's the best position or if they should continue looking. We love to teach. We love to educate. We love to keep up on the market and hang out with the physicians and provide good compensation data and good balanced knowledge as far as uh, all things employment contracts. That's awesome. Yeah. John is our go-to resource in his company at Contract Diagnostics. As fee-only financial planners, we, and we work with hundreds of physicians all across the country. 
We run into contract stuff all the time. And John is our crutch. He's our go-to resource because we are not experts in contracts. That is what he does. We're an experts in the finance part of that. So highly encourage you guys, if you're looking to get your contract reviewed, I highly recommend that you get your contract reviewed. And John, thank you so much for being on. And you guys can check them out, contractdiagnostics.com. Anytime. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Good to see you. Well, we're shifting over to our financial malpractice segments. I've got another thrilling topic for you. It is tax, of course. I'm just kidding. John, welcome back on the show. John is a partner at Physician Tax Advisors. Excited to have you here. Thanks. Thanks for having me back. All right. So we've had some really good financial malpractice segments in the most recent past. What do you have for us today? All right. So we've had a couple of clients over the years, although one in particular stands out, uh, that did some moonlighting work in addition to their W-2. As you might know, and as a lot of the listening audience probably knows, on moonlighting work, you're often considered an independent contractor, which means you're responsible for your own tax bill on all of the income earned. In this case, uh, we had a client that was receiving pay stubs from their moonlighting work. And when I say pay stubs, they look like pay stubs, but there's no taxes withheld. If you look at them, it's just a gross amount and there's no federal state withholding any FICA taxes or anything withheld. So I think a combination of receiving the pay stubs and not looking at them real closely and just not being as familiar perhaps with tax topics, this particular client didn't realize that there often is a hefty tax bill at the end of the year related to moonlighting work. We got to the end of the year, we, we collected information for them and said, hey, uh, you got a little bit of a tax liability. Were you expecting to owe about $10,000, $15,000? And their eyes lit up and they didn't realize, oh my gosh, all that income was great as I was earning it, but it's not so fun here at April 15th uh, when I see the balance too. So the most enjoyable thing when you start doing it, because you look, you're moonlighting, you're trying to pay bills or pay back loans, or you're trying to do all these other things. And come on, doesn't Uncle Sam get that? I got bills to pay. Come on. But it's, it's unfortunate. Yes, everything that we earn, doesn't matter how small, they always want a piece of it. That's right. So, you know, in, in this case, there were a couple things that we were able to do for the client. One, we were able to take in consideration some expenses that they hadn't been really thinking about up until this point. But as a self-employed person, we were able to take some CPE training, some scrubs, some other things that they were out of pocket for anyway that we could use as expenses. So it, that helped out a little bit. And I think that's a really good point because most of you earning money don't think, oh, well, I have a W-2 job, I'm earning some 1099, but I, I don't have really any expenses to offset it. You do, you just have to look hard enough, right? You have to think about it and go, hmm, can I allocate some of this to that. Maybe not the whole thing, but maybe some of it. So that's a good point with that. But also they obviously weren't keeping track of how much they're getting paid and, and all that. Maybe talk a little bit about estimated payments because I can envision right now a couple of people, their mouth are open going, oh crap, like I've got an issue. So I think maybe have their mouth drop a little further and, and tell them what estimated tax payments are. And then maybe some of the things that they can do to mitigate the issue here. Yeah. So the important thing to remember about self-employment income is not only are you getting taxed for federal and state purposes, but you're your own employer, which is a unique issue that not only are you paying Social Security and Medicare taxes on your wages as an employee, which is about seven and a half percent, but you're paying that as the employer as well. So uh, a lot of times we don't realize this, that especially folks that are moonlighting in California, for instance, Ryan, your favorite place. We got to have some extra taxes in California. You know, moonlighting income could be taxed 
almost up to 50% when we take in both parts of FICA and we look at maybe a 22% federal rate and 9% California rate. It's not a small number. So that's why it is important, back to your point of considering estimated payments throughout the year, because the IRS does expect this to be paid in evenly throughout the year. And estimated payments will help you stay out of hot water at the end of the year when you get to your return, because otherwise the IRS will tackle on some underpayment penalties interest as well as the tax owed. Of course they will. We don't want to pay them anything extra if we can help it. Everyone's always got their hands in there, John. It's not fun. And California is, we all know this, horrible from a tax standpoint. Beautiful. It's amazing. I complained today because I had to put socks on because it was 58 degrees outside. Some of you were like, what is wrong with this guy? But it's beautiful. Well, John, thank you so much for kind of dropping some knowledge bombs. Not as much fun, but we did learn a lot. I know people learned on this one. So thank you so much for for joining, coming back on. Appreciate you. Thanks. All right. Well, hopefully you guys enjoyed the show. We're going to bring John back on a couple more times this month to talk all about physician contracts. We've got a really good series engaging this month for you guys there. Of course, we're going to keep doing our Friday financial health assessments that you guys all call in. And you can do so and call those in by going to financialresidency.com slash form, F-O-R-M, and make sure you fill it all out and leave the voicemail. And we'll add you to the queue and get you going on our Friday show with uh, my partner, Casey Kress, at our practice, Physician Wall Services. All right, before we end, don't forget to go... Don't forget to go hang out with my friend, Dr. Aaron Weissman, over at her podcast, Dr. Me First, on your favorite podcast app that you're listening to us in right now. And you can learn more about how to connect with the queen of SAS by heading to drpodcastnetwork.com slash first. All right, everyone, have a great week, and I'll catch you on Friday. Cheers. This is for entertainment purposes only. Do not take this as investment advice. My dad is only a fiduciary for his clients. Have a great day. Bye.